If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 20. We're going to take a look at the first three verses today. I'm about to do something that is stupid in the biggest way, but we're going to do it anyway. Heavenly Father, I pray that, I thank you for your, again, your word that is living and active. Pray that you would use it to encourage people today. Through Christ I pray, amen. So a couple of devotions ago, we began to talk through some of the message of the book of Revelation. I introduced it in the first chapter by talking about how it is a revelation of and from Jesus Christ. It is to John, first of all, and then that first century church through John and then to the rest of us as well. We shared some basic assumptions that we need to carry through this study to understand the book of Revelation. One assumption is that um, uh, many people have taken different approaches to the book of Revelation, and we need to allow grace in that. Some people have been more literal. Some people have been more uh, figurative. Um, The most important thing, we must be united in the fact that we believe that Jesus is coming back. The book of Revelation is very clear. Jesus is coming back. It's very clear we need to live being ready for him to return any day. We need to give lots of space for people to disagree about the margins. Um, We also said one of our assumptions is that the book of Revelation is intended to be understood it is a revelation, an uncovering of and from Jesus Christ. Any approach that makes it um, difficult, or I shouldn't say difficult, but makes it uh, uh, um, something that people would shy away from completely distorts the point of the book of Revelation. In fact, verse 3 in chapter 1 says, Blessed is the one who reads, who, who, who reads, who listens, and who applies, who does, who acts on these things. Uh, the book of Revelation ends in the same way. You know, don't add to or take away from the prophecy that you've read here. The, the, uh, when God gives us the book of Revelation, he expects us to understand it so we can act on it. He expects us to understand it so we won't add to it or take away from it. it, from, from it. Any approach that makes it so we are afraid and think that we can't understand it does a disservice to God and to the book of Revelation. Uh, doesn't mean it's always easy. I mean, if somebody's illiterate, they're going to have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation, but it is understandable. Um, another assumption, though, that I want for us to understand is um, the, the book of Revelation, when you think of um, time, understand in the third verse when it says the time is near, the word for time there is not chronos, it's kairos. It's not saying look at your calendar, look at your watch. It's saying, understand the message, understand the era, understand the season of what we're talking about here and be ready, act on it as a result, okay? Um, Another another thing that I would have us understand is um, the book, uh, implied this already, the book of Revelation is first written to John, which means, any th- interpretation that says John couldn't understand the book of Revelation, that the book of Revelation is lost on John somehow, um, I think does a disservice to the book of Revelation. Every generation of follower of Jesus Christ, every generation of Christians believe Jesus could return in their time. And I think that's appropriate. I think that God wrote the book of Revelation with that intention so that we are always ready for his return. 
One final assumption that I haven't shared so far. We have to be consistent in our translation, in our, in our interpretation of the book of Revelation, our hermeneutic. One of the reasons, in my opinion, people get messed up in understanding the book of Revelation is that they have an inconsistent hermeneutic, an interpretation. What I mean by that is this. They'll say, oh, it's all this figurative language. Therefore, what I can understand as literal, I'll make literal. And what I understand as figurative, I'll make, I'll make figurative. So, since they can understand letter numbers as literal, they'll make all the numbers literal. You know, the seven lampstands or the 144,000 or whatever. Those are all the, the thirds and the thirds and the numbers of days. Oh, those are all literal because I can understand a literal day. On the other hand, what they can't understand, um, locusts and beasts and whatever, they'll say, oh, those are clearly figures. Um, that's, in my opinion, that is a really sloppy approach to exegeting the Bible. Um, you allow the text to define the text. The best way to understand the book of Revelation is to allow it to interpret itself. And there's no reason to believe that just because something, I mean, it's so filled with figurative language. Just allow it to be figures. A lot, my my uh, Greek professor used to say, read the book of Revelation like a movie that's unfolding, like you would any other piece of literature. And just allow the movie to explain itself rather than trying to superimpose your uh, newspaper articles or, you know, your present day, you know, historical people uh, into these, into these different um, pictures. One of the, and so one of the problems that people have with Revelation is specifically with the numbers. You know, we use numbers as figures all the time, but not as much as they do in the first century. And they use apocalyptic language more than we do as well. But, um, you know, we say, uh, we read the scripture and the scripture says, you know, he, he, um, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, um, and we know that that's not saying you count the thousand hills and he doesn't own the second thousand hills. He just owns the, the cattle on the first thousand hills. We, no, no, no. The idea of a thousand is he owns them all. You're not limiting them. He owns a thousand hills. It's just like, wow, an enormous number. He owns them all. And the same thing in the book of Revelation and certainly the same thing here in the 20th chapter is a good example of where people get tripped up with with numbers. We talk about prime rib. You know, there's a kind of a number. What do you think prime rib? Well, you don't think, well, there's a, you know, there's a tertiary rib, you know, there's a third level rib. No, we just, prime rib, it's the best rib, you know, uh, it's the prime cut. Um, you know, in, in, uh, where I used to, there was, a, there was a place in Cincinnati that used to, um, <laughs> that used to have a place downstairs where they sold seconds. Now, what was that? What does it mean? It didn't mean there were firsts. Seconds were just clothing that were irregulars. 
you know, they may have a stitch that's off or, you know, a button that's fallen off or something like that. It's the, but you refer, it's less than perfect. It's called a second. There's not a third, there's not a fourth, you're not thinking. So remember that as we read the book of Revelation and it's talking about the second death and those kinds of things. Um, it, 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 the, the book of Revelation is intended to be written in apocalyptic language and just allow it to interpret itself. Verse one of chapter 20. Again, this is really dangerous jumping into chapter 20 without having worked through the figures of the first uh, you know, 19 chapters, but here we go. John says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and the great chain in his hand. Okay, so to understand the context, you have to look and look at associations. The angels we've seen, if you read through the book of Revelation, the angels are the God people. You know, they're on God's side, coming down from heaven. He is a heavenly associated guy. We've read earlier in the, in the, the book about the abyss. This is the bad people come down, come out of the abyss. And he holds a great chain in his, he holds a key. Keys open things up and lock things up. The chains, you know what chains do with prisoners, right? Uh, and so he's holding a chain. This is an angel from heaven who has control over things. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Okay, we allow the passage to define itself. And bound him for a thousand years. Now, what are you going to do with that thousand years? Again, some people like to make that immediately. They, oh, I understand a thousand years, a thousand literal years. He's going to be bound. Really? He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. That God is only in control of, owns a thousand of them? Again, I th- I'm going to prejudice you a little bit, but as you read the passage, what you're going to see is there's Satan who is bound a thousand years type, you know, which means he is ultimately bound by God. He's under God's control. He's under God's dominion, even though God gives him some freedom for time. Anyway, so he bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and closed it. That's got that key and sealed it. So no one, so he would deceive, no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. And after that, he must be released for a short time. So again, in my opinion, what we're, rather than, remember the time value from the beginning, not chronos, kairos, and we're thinking here, don't think in terms of literal time. What if the way we read the book of Revelation is a way that applies to John, applies to the first century, 14th century, 15th century, 21st century? What if what we're seeing is a description of spiritual warfare? the reality that John is facing and that every Christian faces throughout time. And what is that reality? Satan is real. And he does have some influence, but he is bound. Ultimately, he's bound, even though, and you maybe put it in a time factor, even though God does give him some freedom. See, he still does have some reign, doesn't he? He still does cause some trouble along the way. But the reality of Satan is he is under God's control. He's still the bound type. Think about John on the island of Patmos. John has seen Satan at work. He has seen Satan as the prince of this world, 
and yet how assuring it is to see the picture from the upper story that says, yeah, but from the upper story perspective, Satan's reign is a short-term reign. It's a short-time reign. It's a limited reign because the big picture is God is sovereign. God is in control. John, you be faithful unto death and you'll receive a crown of life. See, the literal truth is God owns it all. Um, uh, verse three there says, and after all, he must be released for a short time. Um, think about the gathering demoniac that Jesus approached one day. Bible says that he's been out there in the Gazarene area, the Gadarenes, and um, and he's um, he's possessed by demons. Whether it's one or a hundred or a thousand, we don't know. When Jesus asks him his name, he doesn't give him a name; he gives him a number. I'm Legion, he says, for we are many. I don't know if he's trying to intimidate Jesus or what. That those demons were doing real damage to that man. Um, everybody was afraid of him. He was running naked and living in uh, amongst the, the the graves, the tombs. But Jesus confronted the demons, and the demons knew they had to obey Jesus. And so Jesus cast them out, and he cast them into the pigs. And the demoniac was set free and he sat at Jesus' feet and he wanted to follow Jesus. That's a picture of what we have here in Revelation 20. Satan is loosed. His demons can do a lot of damage. But the Bible says in First First uh, John uh, for for greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The Bible says that we have to let God fight the battles for us because Satan is real. He is a threat, but God is greater. I heard a missionary recently say, a missionary from um, Sierra Leone, point out, he said, we have to pray every day for God's power, for the power of the Holy Spirit to be increased in us because Satan feels entitled to territory. And he certainly feels enti entitled to territory that he already owns. And so if we resist him, it's going to take the power of Christ in us to bind him and to keep him from taking the territory he feels entitled to. And if we dare to, to take him on, I mean, just think about the, all the evil in the United States right now. Think of all the people who are underneath um, a, a satanic attack, maybe spiritual attack. Maybe it's just they believe that good is evil and evil is good. If you and I dare to take Christ into a lost world, to take light into the dark world, Satan feels entitled to that territory. And so we need the power of Christ with us. And we need to pray, God, 
go before us. Jesus, bind, bind the evil one or else we lose. This is the first part of Revelation chapter 20. We have this picture that Satan is real, but he's bound. Yeah, he's out for a short time, but Jesus, at the name of Jesus, he must submit. So don't be afraid. Where is it in your life right now where you feel like you're under spiritual attack and Satan is having some victory? Is there any place in your life right now that you think Satan or in somebody else's life, somebody you love or some area in your town that you feel like, you know, Satan really thinks he owns that territory, but Jesus, we're going to claim it for you. Well, it begins right here with really believing that God's, that he, greater is he than is in us than he that is in the world. And that is why we need the good shepherd, because even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil because he is with us. That's the message of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Even John, even though you've seen the power of Satan and the pain of the, Satan can, can uh, uh, inflict, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Heavenly Father, encourage us by your word today. Help people to not be afraid, but to see how practical this is. Through Christ I pray, amen. We'll pick it up there next time.